Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special bonus episode of our new podcast series, Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin. On December 15th, the Times of Israel hosted an event in Jerusalem with prominent legal scholars who discussed the new government's plans to curtail the high court's power and explored its likely far-reaching impact on Israeli democracy and society. Now you can hear what was said at this event, as well as additional interviews in our limited podcast series, Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin. In these eight episodes, we hear from eight different thinkers from diverse walks of life who express their extremely varied opinions. So please check out this episode and subscribe to Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin, wherever you get your podcasts. Israeli democracy in danger? As judicial reform is discussed in the Knesset's halls, we at the Times of Israel are taking a journey probing into what are the country's current checks and balances and what could be the consequences of potential new legislation. Are we headed for a tyranny of the majority or rather implementing much needed legislation? Join us as we explore these issues with top Israeli legal experts in this Limited Times of Israel podcast series, Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin? Hello, everyone. Welcome to this third episode, which is drawn from a Times of Israel live-streamed event on December 15th at the Israel Democracy Institute in Jerusalem on the topic of judicial reform. You will hear Times of Israel editor David Horowitz introduce Professor Moshe Kopel and ask some follow-up questions after, or in this case, in the middle of his remarks. Moshe decidedly is against the idea of using the powers of the Supreme Court to create what he dubs happy results for a monolithic imagined quote-unquote minority. Future episodes will include remarks from other speakers who firmly disagree with Moshe. Stay tuned. And now let's turn to Moshe Koppel, who is going to speak, among other aspects, I'm sure, uh, about other countries' less activist Supreme Courts. Professor Koppel is Professor Emeritus of Computer Science at Bar-Ilan University and the founding chairman of the Kohelet Policy Forum. His most recent book is Judaism Straight Up, Why Real Religion Endures. So, Professor Koppel, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Okay, let me begin by saying that I am, uh, in my general political and economic views, I'm a classical liberal, a libertarian, and uh, I worry about, uh, about the excesses of the elected branches. I worry about the Knesset, and I worry about the executive, the government. I fear the excess of power that they may, uh, that they may use, and I support judicial review in principle. However, just as I think that there should be checks and balances on the uh, Knesset and on the government, I think there equally needs to be checks and balances on the court itself. Okay, and what I never hear from uh, defenders of the court is, well, what are the checks and balances on the court that you actually support? Okay, so let, let me, let, let's talk about what the checks and balances are in other governments, in, in, the, in the rest of the world. How do the uh, elected branches of government, in fact, apply checks and balances to the court? 
And the answer is in multiple ways. First of all, the appointments process. The elected branches generally are the ones who choose the judges. Secondly, there are limits to what are the cases that the judges can hear, namely uh, standing. Uh, a person can only bring a petition to the court if that person has been directly and personally affected by the issue at hand. Secondly, there are limitations on justiciability. Namely, there are specific issues in which the court does not intervene. For example, in the United States, there's a political questions doctrine. There are political issues that are regarded as the, the job of the elected branches to deal with Congress and the executive, the president, uh, and all matters that require expertise that goes beyond uh, legal expertise, the court will not get involved in, the Supreme Court won't get involved in. There are also limitations on the grounds in which the courts can intervene. For example, uh, the court will only intervene in uh, administrative actions in the United States if the administrative action is regarded as arbitrary and capricious, but not simply if the court disagrees with it. Okay, and in countries where there is a constitution, the court is bound by the constitution. Now, in Israel, none, absolutely none of these limitations or these checks and balances on the judicial branch apply. So to be specific, with regard to appointments, uh, only in Israel is there actually veto power to the Israeli Supreme Court on the appointment of new Supreme Court judges. Okay, you, there's a, a committee of nine people, three of which are judges, sitting judges, active judges, on the Supreme Court. And you need seven out of nine, which means that effectively the three justices who are sitting on that committee have veto power over any new uh, appointment to the court, which does not exist in any country in the world, with the exception of possibly India, Turkey, and Greece. But other countries in the world do not have that limitation. Secondly, with regard to standing, in Israel, anybody who comes to the court can petition the court, just to bring you an extreme, uh, extreme example of that. Recently, <laughs> Israel's policy with regard to immigration from the Ukraine to Israel was challenged in the court by a petition from the ambassador of Ukraine. In no other country would the ambassador of a foreign country have standing in the court. Standing in the court is only for those who are directly and personally affected. Uh, justiciability. What are the matters that the court can deal with? Uh, Barak has said that the court has justice. There is justiciability over all matters. Hakol Shafit is the right, including matters of war and peace, which does not exist in any other country. The question is also, what are the grounds on which the court can intervene with government actions? And in other countries, for example, Let's take the United States, as I said, only in the case of arbitrary and capricious rulings can the court involve itself, intervene in, matter, in administrative matters. In Israel, if the courts disagree with the reasoning of some administrative body, the court will intervene. And I'm going to bring specific examples of that. And of course, in other countries, other countries are bound by, the courts are bound by the constitution of the country. If there is no constitution, such as in Commonwealth countries, the court can recommend, but cannot actually disqualify particular rulings. And in countries where there is a constitution, the court is bound by the constitution. In Israel, this is not the case. In Israel, the court can actually 
or has actually, not can, but has assumed for itself the responsibility <laughs> of ruling on the constitutionality of basic laws, which are in fact the constitution of Israel. So every single one of the limitations that there are in other countries, the checks and balances that there are in other countries on the court's power do not exist in Israel. The court has absolutely unchecked and unbalanced power in Israel. I would add to this that in Israel, the court has um, empowered what they call the gatekeepers, Shomrei Asaf. For example, the attorney general, whose powers are not actually defined in law. There is no law that defines the powers of the attorney general. And nevertheless, the court has said that the attorney general's rulings are binding on the government. And therefore, if the attorney general rules that some government action is unconstitutional, that is actually binding on the government. Okay, now bear in mind, the attorney general, as I said, his authorities or his or her authorities are not actually defined by law. And finally, with regard to the law itself, uh, the Israeli court has invented something called the objective purpose, okay, objective uh, of the law, which, which effectively means ignoring the actual law just so that it's clear to everybody, what is called the subjective purpose of the law, subjective purpose of the law, is what the legislature actually intended. The objective intention of the law is what the court thinks the court what the court thinks the legislature should have intended. This is actually fancy language invented by Barak, by Chief Justice Aaron Barak, to Ignore the law, the language of the law, completely. Okay. Now, you may ask, okay, well, in that case, what's the argument? What is the argument for supporting this unchecked and unbalanced power of the court? And the answer is that, well, the argument is, well, you know, the legislature is populist. It's based on the majority, and it's dangerous. Uh, it has insufficient checks and balances. It has insufficient internal checks and balances, as Amichai said, uh, and I'll discuss this uh, specifically later. And, well, after all, the court gives positive results. There's results that we're happy about. So why complain if the results, if the results are happy results? Now, the second session of this, uh, this conference is actually all about happy results that the court gives, and we should all be happy about them. So what's the problem? Okay, now, all this argument itself suffers from four logical fallacies and one empirical fallacy, and I apologize, I'm a mathematician, I'm gonna talk in logic language, okay? So let me first talk about the four logical fallacies that defenders of the, current, uh, of the court's powers uh, invoke. So first of all, the defense of the court's powers are, well, we think that the court gives happy results. Okay, let's start with that. I think that if you want to defend a particular procedure, okay, in other words, what should be the procedure? Who should have the power? Who should decide what is legal and what's not legal? Who should decide what is constitutional and what's constitutional? Well, we think the court should do it because it gives happy results, okay? That's wrong. The minute that you argue for particular procedures on the basis of substantial results, you have made a logical fallacy, okay? For example, 
just just to show you why this argument doesn't work, you could absolutely argue that a benevolent or semi-benevolent or somewhat benevolent dictator is at, gives good results, okay? Well, the trains run on time, okay? So there are good results, okay? If you want to defend a particular procedure, you should not be arguing on the basis of good results. That's why I think the entire second session of this conference is completely irrelevant. If you want to argue that a procedure is correct, you have to argue on procedural grounds that that procedure is correct, okay? And that is not the case here. Secondly, the argument that we're getting happy results if we let the court have particular powers is in fact assuming that the legislature is bad and populist and gonna do all kinds of terrible things. The argument that they usually use is they're gonna hang all the redheads, okay? And the, the court is gonna come and it's gonna preserve our rights, okay? In fact, Yaniv exactly argued, made this argument that the court is gonna defend the rights of minorities. However, if you think about it, well, why should we assume that it's specifically the legislature or the executive that are going to be doing horrible things? Maybe it's the judicial branch that's gonna be doing terrible things. Maybe we ought to be thinking about what checks and balances there ought to be on the judicial branch to protect, uh, to protect us from them doing terrible things, okay? So if the unelected branch, namely the, the judicial branch, the court, has the power to decide even with regard to basic laws, okay, now I remind you, their argument was that ordinary statutes could be ruled unconstitutional on the, basic, uh, on the basis of basic laws, because basic laws were Israel's constitution. Now the question is, well, what about Israel's basic laws. Can we rule on that? Interestingly, the court decided that it could actually re it could actually rule on the constitutionality of constitutional legislation, namely on basic laws. This is essentially, imagine in the United States, if the court said, you know what, the Constitution's really, yeah, it's a nice thing, but the Constitution is not perfect. We're going to rule on the constitutionality of the Constitution itself based on general principles of democracy. Okay, so we're going to decide that the Constitution itself might not be quite what we want because we have certain unwritten, unwritten principles of democracy. On that basis, we're going to make decisions. Okay, so the court is actually in Israel, specifically, it has. I'm not talking about theoretically. The court has, in fact, ruled on the constitutionality of basic laws. Now, you may say, well, okay, well, what the court needs to do is to defend the rights of the minority. Amichai spoke about the rights of the minority. Now, let me make clear that in Israel, not only in Israel, but everywhere, every law, every law that gets passed is somehow detrimental to some particular minority. Let me take a particular, just a random example, okay? There's a law that is, is now being discussed, which is namely the, um, the government's funding of nursery schools. That is schools that are for children from the age of zero to three, okay? There, there, the idea is that we ought to uh, 
give free education to children who are from the age of zero to three. Now, let's think about what is the minority that this affects, negatively or positively? Okay, well, let's take the Haredim. They're a minority. Haredim have lots of children. So for them, this is a positive. Okay, let's take, how about um, gays, lahatabim in Hebrew, okay, gays. How does that affect them? Well, on average, gays have fewer children than do Haredim or do the average uh, citizen of Israel. So if we're going to fund nursery schools for children, well, that affects them negatively. What about nursery school teachers, private nursery school teachers? Well, this affects them negatively because now there's going to be competition from free nursery schools that are funded by the government. So this offends them. This affects them negatively. Okay, so in fact, what we're talking about here, okay, if you think about any particular law, is, well, there are different minorities, and some of them are affected positively, and some of them are affected negatively, and if we think about the court intervening of these laws, well, then, in the exact opposite direction, some of them will be affected positively, and some of them negatively. Okay, so in fact, what we're actually talking about here, and let me, let me point out one more thing, that Whenever we talk about rights and defending rights, we're actually talking about balancing rights, not actually defending rights. Okay, so for example, if I have a right to um, freedom of expression, there's somebody else who has freedom of privacy, and I might be offending that freedom of privacy. And what the court is being asked to do is to balance those rights, okay? It's not really the majority against the minority, and there's no specific minority. You can't talk about the minority. There are different minorities in the country. Now, what happens, what's actually happening when the court intervenes in these matters is not that the court is defending the minority. What's happening is that there are particular minorities that are favored minorities, and what the court is doing is saying, well, we want to protect the particular preferences of that minority. So as Amichai said before, well, you know, the Haredim are not actually a minority that we want to be careful about protecting their rights. In fact, the, they are actually using the system in order to either manipulating the system in order to get extra benefits. But there are other minorities that are favored minorities, and our intention there is to protect those minorities' rights, okay? So the idea of defending the minority is actually a logical fallacy. There is no the minority. There are many minorities, and some may be favored, and some may not be favored. And finally, okay, so you're going to say, yeah, okay, as Amichai said, well, maybe the problem really is, well, okay, we need to defend the rights of minorities, and there's certain minorities we're trampling on their rights, okay? And the problem is that there were insufficient barriers to legislation in Israel, right? So that in some places, there is the veto of the executive. In some places, there are two houses where the upper house gets to block bad legislation because you have to go through a, a two-stage process, etc. Now, Buchanan and Tulloch in their calculus of consent deal with this issue. I, com I am completely sympathetic to the problem that we don't want legislation to be too simple. We want legislation to be difficult because all legislation effectively, any legislation at all, effectively affects particular minorities in negative ways. And we want to be careful 
that there are barriers to legislation and Israel doesn't have particular barriers to legislation. Let me be clear, okay, that this is a complicated issue. Some legislation, in fact, removes barriers, okay? Some legislation is in favor of minorities. The court, so here's the question, okay? Let's agree, I'm willing to agree that there is in fact a problem that legislation in Israel is too easy. There aren't sufficient barriers to legislation, which is Amichai's point. Well, how do you jump from there to, well, in that case, we think that the court ought to be able to intervene in legislation, okay? If the court can, you know what? By the same argument that Amichai made, I can say, well, well, maybe the Israel Democracy Institute ought to intervene in legislation. Maybe Kohelet ought to intervene in legislation. How do we get from the fact that there are insufficient barriers to legislation within legislation, within the legislative branch, okay? How do we get from there to the fact that, okay, in that case, the court ought to authorize itself to be a barrier to legislation. The court has basically determined that it itself should be some kind of upper house. I don't see how you get there, okay? You might as well say that the, the chief rabbinate of Israel ought to be an upper house. You don't get there. So wrapping up, I just want to say the following. The question that I want to pose to you is this. Are the consequences of the fact that there are no checks and balances to the court, but only checks and balances to the elected branches of government, okay? Does this, in fact, advance the rights of minorities, or does it actually advance the interests, both institutional and individual, of the judicial branch itself and those whom the judicial branch has empowered? I want to give one example, if you'll allow me one example of this. In 2019, Shiny Tsan, who was the chief prosecutor, his term was completed, and it was necessary to appoint a, some, a new chief prosecutor. The court said that it was, not the court, but actually the attorney general who was empowered by the court said, well, Ohana, Amir Ohana, who was the justice minister, who, who was the person who was supposed to appoint a new chief prosecutor, he could not appoint a permanent chief prosecutor because during a at the time, there were, there were elections were, were happening soon, he said, when it's a period of a transitional government, you can't appoint the the you can't appoint a new minister. Uh, excuse me, a new a new chief prosecutor. Thank you. First of all, I'm sorry to stop you, but we have a schedule. Did you say at the very beginning? Correct me if I'm incorrect. That you do favour in principal aspects of judicial review. I think that's what you said. Correct. I and did. You, so ex just explain to me very briefly, if you can, in what areas do you favour judicial? In all areas, I believe that judicial review is perfectly reasonable, subject to the usual, to the usual checks and balances on the judicial branch. I understand, and I just wanted to ask you, given everything that you said, it was not clear to me how you would, uh, you spoke about, of course, every majority decision affects a minority, but how, how it, with the limitations and the concerns that you have, do you protect any minority rights and uh, freedoms from a legislative majority that is like-minded? How do you guarantee those? What other mechanisms do we have? Again, briefly, if you can. Again, so I completely agree that there should be judicial review. The judicial review, and judicial review is the mechanism by which we do that. The judicial review ought to be a function of, first of all, 
that judges ought to be appointed in the way that they were appointed in every other country in the world, in every other democracy in the world, which is namely, there is no veto power to the judicial mm -hmm. branch so itself. So you, you would change the, the balance within the selection committee, I, I assume. Yes. yes, and for moreover, I think that there should be limits on who has standing before the court, yeah, that was what cases are just disable, mm -hmm. what are the limits on grounds, <laughs> namely, the court can't say, I don't like that, and yep. therefore, I don't agree with what the government did, and therefore, I disagree. It should be only on the basis of that is actually arbitrary and capricious. I think the authority of the attorney general should be the attorney general is the lawyer of the court and mm -hmm. should not have power, uh, is, the, is the lawyer of the government and should not have power over the government. And I think that basic laws ought to be inviolate. Uh, in Given all these things, yeah. I have absolutely no problem with judicial review. So I, I, I kind of want one final thing, which you kind of answered for me, but I want to stress it anyway. You, you spoke of the basic laws as the Constitution, and yet we see them being so casually changed. Right now, yesterday, today, they're changing basic laws with a majority that is easily wielded by a uh, like-minded coalition. That's got to be a concern. That is correct. And if my interlocutor's con here would agree that we should change the appointments process and that we should limit standing and limit justiciability and limit the grounds on which the court could intervene and that the court could not intervene in constitutional matters, I would absolutely agree with them that the idea of an override is a bad idea. Thank you very much, and I'm sorry that I had to curtail you a little bit, but I, I hope you feel that you got to, to make the key points that you wanted to make. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this piece of a discussion hosted by the Times of Israel delving into all sides of the looming High Court Override Clause proposal. A thanks to producer Gilad Brownstein and to TOI's own Mick Weinstein. Shalom. Shalom.